0: A Lifetime Original Podcast.
1: This episode covers topics that include murder and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. When a jolly nurse came to Amelia Finney's bedside and fed her a bitter tonic, she felt an almost instant euphoria. Before long, she was knocked unconscious, exactly as the nurse intended. But
2: what she didn't intend was for Amelia to wake back up. As her head cleared from the morphine-induced stupor, she could feel someone astride her, kissing all over her face. Amelia couldn't be sure, but it
1: looked like the nurse had crawled into bed with her. Suddenly, the sound of approaching footsteps
2: startled the nurse,
1: and she took off as if she were afraid of getting caught.
2: Amelia's head was still swimming with morphine. She couldn't be sure if what she just witnessed was real or some strange dream. So by the time she left the hospital, she didn't tell anyone a thing. Fourteen years later,
1: Amelia would see her nurse in the newspaper, and she'd know what she experienced was all too real. That nurse was Jolly Jane Toppin, one of the most prolific killers in American history.
2: But what's most shocking about Jane's story is who she targeted, and why she believed that poison was the only tool she needed to get what she wants. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime.
0: So before we
1: know her as Jolly Jane Toppin, this soulless, murderous nurse, she was born Anora Kelly in 1854, and she's the daughter of Irish immigrants. And any account we have on her family, it describes it as a tragedy and a loss. We're not totally sure exactly what happened, but by some accounts, her parents both died due to a fever On their ship to Boston from Ireland, and then she and her siblings were sent to an orphanage before she could talk.
2: But there's other accounts about her family that are really different from this. The one that seems to be the most true is that her parents survived the journey to the United States, but then her mom dies of tuberculosis when Honora's is only one years old. Her father is an abusive drunk who suffers from severe mental illness. He actually has this really great nickname— Kelly the crack, as in crackpot. And it's rumored that when he worked as a tailor, he sewed his own eyelids shut. It's an image straight out of a horror film.
1: In this version of events, Honora is just six years old when her dad brings her to the orphanage with her sister, and he never looks back. The two of them are just left there. And no matter how you tell the story, no matter which of these is true, it means the young Honora Kelly becomes an orphan before she ever has a chance to know what it means to be loved by her family.
2: In the mid-1800s, the idea of servitude is actually foundational to the Boston female asylum where Honora is. Children who are orphaned there are raised with a skill that they might take with them to their new families if they are one of the lucky ones who gets to leave. Basically, if you Adopt a kid from there; they'll come with some sort of bonus skill, guaranteed to make your life easier.
1: Well, okay, I wouldn't go as far to call it an adoption. It's more like a rent-a-servant or like servant, like indentured servitude, but for kids. You know, child labor laws weren't the strongest at this time. Sure. It feels like a temp agency for child labor. And keep in mind, as our latest estimate, Honora is just six years old at the time. She learns the skills of being a servant so that she might be useful to some upper-class family who will take her in. And remember, this is the Gilded Age. Like, think Downton Abbey or probably more aptly Gilded Age. You know, same creators, different country. You know the vibe. (laughs) Um, She needs to know how to make beds, clean and be respectful to her betters. That includes cleaning chamber pots. According to all the adults around her, this is her best chance at a good, decent life.
2: I don't know if she's sold on that idea. Um, I don't know if she's a choice. I, she's six years old. <laughs> well, you know, part of the problem is that Cinderella is not in print at this time, so that she doesn't have like a blueprint um, to draw from to know that it might get better. She's just a kid. She wants to uh, play. I don't know. Do some make believe, not clean chamber pots. But she's in an orphanage, and there's just not a lot of love to go around.
1: I'm just, like, imagining little orphan Annie next to little Nora Kelly, you know, with Miss Hannigan at the helm. I don't know. That's just where my mind goes.
2: Where are you, Daddy
1: Warbucks? (laughs) Where are you? Well, listen, she ain't going to get no Daddy Warbucks. This isn't exactly a happy ending because I just don't think we would be telling this story. But lucky for Honora, at this time, she doesn't have to wait very long to find her home. Around 1860, Honora is taken in by a woman called Anne Toppin. She's the matriarch of a wealthy family in Lowell, which is just north of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And she's taken in and she's raised by the Toppins, but not as a daughter, to be clear, but as an indentured servant.
2: Anne, becoming part of the Toppin house is also how she gets her name. Her foster mother, Thor I guess maybe boss is more accurate, thought that Honora Kelly sounds too Irish. So she changes it to Jane Toppin. Super similar. Very chill for a kid. Here's a totally new name. And in every way that she could, she then erases Jane's history. She tells her neighbors that Jane is Italian, not Irish, and that her father didn't abandon her. Both her parents are dead.
1: Well, a couple things I just want to interject. One, like telling the story of who her dad was might be a little challenging. Hey, this is my new servant. Her dad sewed his eyelids shut. Might be like a hard, (laughs) a hard introduction to make. But also I think it's worth noting that at this time, the Irish were just not in good social standing and were pretty heavily discriminated against. So having a servant who's of Irish descent might be met with looks or, you know, just not nice things.
2: And there's just no love lost between Jane and her new mother figure.
1: But the Toppin family has their own daughter... Elizabeth. And she just doesn't get that memo, maybe because this kid is six years old and Elizabeth is a little older. And she considers Jane to be more like a sister, you know? And she loves to listen to Jane tell these fantastical stories about her life. Jane tells her stories about how her father's traveling the world, or her sister married a member of the English nobility. And she even goes as far to say that she has a brother who was given a medal by Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg. Impressive resume. And then here Mm. she is on their doorstep. It's a bit far-fetched, but obviously none of it is true, or we would have mentioned it earlier, but who can blame her for imagining a happier story for her family?
2: Definitely. And she's a kid. She likes to play pretend, but... Anne Toppin does not see this as play. She doesn't see it as imagination. She sees it as lies, which (laughs) coming from you, uh, Anne, that's pretty rich considering you just made up a new name and a whole backstory for Jane. But Anne Toppin is a hypocrite, so she punishes Jane for fibbing. And by looking at the history, it seems like that happens a lot. For every punishment that Jane got, She learns more and more how to hide her true feelings behind a smile. And Jane grows to hate her mother figure, Anne. When it comes to Jane's relationship with Elizabeth, that's pretty complicated, obviously. Uh, Even though, as Carrie said, Elizabeth treated Jane like a friend or a sister, Jane's not really impressed. They are not, despite any kindness as shown, equals. Jane cleans Elizabeth's chamber pot. It's
1: not a friendship. (laughs) And according to the contract that was signed when Jane was taken in by the Toppins, she has to work there until she turns 18. Then, once she turns 18, they will pay her a whopping $50 and have the option to keep her on as their servant. So by the time she's 18 years old, she's endured years of servitude and abuse from the Toppins, and Jane has this deep buildup of resentment towards them but she's gotten really good at putting on a happy face and smiling all while she's hating them. And after she turns 18, she's paid her $50, and then Anne asks her to stay on as a paid servant in their house. And because she really doesn't have any other options, Jane agrees. From the get-go, Jane's whole life has just been crappy. She's experienced loss, abandonment, servitude, and in all of this there is absolutely no love. None. I assume her parents loved her as best as they could, but because of her mother's death and her father's mental health or his death, whichever one may be the truth, she'll never know the feeling of unconditional love. And no one spent their time trying to fix that.
2: No. I mean, there's this opportunity to shift the narrative when she's I don't want to use the word adopted when she's hired as a six-year-old. I don't know. It felt like someone signed up for the job to love this kid. Oh, no, the fine print is they actually just want the labor. That's the closest thing to a family she'll experience in her lifetime.
1: I mean, she's taught that relationships are an exchange and an imbalanced one at that. And she keeps being let down over and over and over again by those who are supposed to take care of her. And I think what's also just so heartbreaking is, like, this family takes in a six-year-old. A six-year-old. Like, do you know how tiny six-year-olds are?
2: If you don't have a six-year-old at home, look at a picture of one and then think about the story we've told thus far. Go clean the sheets. Go change my chamber pot. Like, what?
1: Like, even if we're wrong and even if she's eight years old when she's adopted, like, when she's taken in. Like, it's so insane to me that they wouldn't care for this young child.
2: Yeah, and I did want to point out that sometimes adoptions that happen later in life after kids have been in abusive or neglectful homes, that can result in the child developing reactive attachment disorder. And that can happen even if you go to a good home, unlike what happened to Jane. This disorder is really complex. It's highly under-researched, and I'm only a little bit familiar with it because I'm part of an adoptive family, But if I were to make a sweeping generalization right now, and again, this is just my opinion as a person who's done some research on the topic, I would say that when left to its own devices and it's not being combated with a new healthy relationship or a safe bond, that that disorder, RAD, can result in an inability or at the very least an extreme difficulty in establishing healthy relationships. And another manifestation of RAD is severely inappropriate social relating, which we're about to see is the understatement of the century when applied to Jane. By 1885, Jane is itching to get out of that topping house. She's 30 now, but she still doesn't have a lot of options. She has all the skills of a cleaner and a caretaker though. So instead of continuing as a maid in another household, rather than that, she enrolls in school for what seems like the most natural fit, nursing. She starts nursing school at Cambridge Hospital, where she quickly earns the nickname Jolly Jane from her teachers. It's better than her dad's nickname. (laughs) Kelly the Crackpot. It's
1: definitely an upgrade. And she's incredibly friendly with the doctors and teachers that are above her, and they all adore her. But in this new environment, she revisits her old habit of telling fantastical stories and gossip. She goes as far as to tell her classmates that she was once offered a job with the Tsar of Russia. And her classmates quickly go, huh, Huh. I just don't know if that, huh, I'm not sure that's true.
2: Well, her it wasn't honest, Jane. I mean, give her a break. That's not the <laughs> Nick Jelly Jane. You
1: know you right. She likes
2: to fib here and there. She she also, I should say, likes to steal a little bit, likes to manipulate. So she fools her teachers into letting her leave class early. Not only that. But she's caught stealing from the hospital a few times. And you'd think, I, I mean, it, that sounds serious to me. I would i would imagine they'd kick her out or something like that. No, But no, the no. thing is, she's just so darn jolly. You gotta keep her.
1: I mean, she's a star student. She's She exceeds in a lot of her classes. And also, let's be honest, she knows how to manage her managers. She's really good at that. So she gets away with it. It also doesn't hurt that she's really amazing at caring for patients. And she seems to have this particular fondness for taking care
2: of the elderly and sick. And this is where Jane learns all about the power of drugs in medicine. Two drugs in particular seem to fascinate Jane. Morphine and atropine. Morphine is mostly used as a sedative, while atropine is commonly used as an excitant. It's like a yin and yang situation.
1: When Jane learns how to use these drugs, she realizes that they give her this power, not only to help those in pain, but also to push people to the brink of death. As we know, in high enough doses, morphine can kill and atropine can increase the heart rate of patients,
2: simulating a heart attack. When nobody's supervising her, Jane would inject elderly patients with these drugs. It's like she's doing her own personal experiments. Sometimes she would bring them back from the brink of death as a show of her skill as a nurse, but other times she would relish in their death. She would later
1: go on to describe the face of a dying person as beautiful almost angelic to watch. She experiences an almost sexual excitement watching her patients
2: die. According to some reports, as you heard at the beginning, even from survivors, Jane would crawl into bed with patients sometimes and hold them as they slowly died. And once it was over, to cover her tracks, she would falsify their medical records.
1: After several patients die in Jolly Jane's care, the hospital notices, and they have no other choice but to release her from the Cambridge Hospital without a nursing certificate. That's basically the only punishment she got, which is just, like, insane Astounding. to me. Like, they're like, yeah, all of these patients are dying sort of mysteriously. We can explain them. They're all old. They're not really looking into it truthfully. But they're like, it's not looking good, so they let her go. But they give her a glowing recommendation along with her exit. And it's glowing enough that she's able to get into a nursing school at Massachusetts
2: General. And there she continues practicing with these fatal drugs on her patients. She mostly works with the old and the very sick. So the doctors aren't like extremely surprised when her patients die. But her fellow classmates know something's up. While she is experimenting on her patients
1: with these drugs, some of her fellow nurses' you know, blinks go off, and then they begin to sort of hone in on her, watching her every move. And what's so mind-blowing is that she isn't exactly hiding what she's doing. She goes as far as to tell some of her classmates that she didn't see any point in keeping old people alive. Hello, Motive. Nice to meet you. She seems to have no remorse for the lives that she's taking and no problem with taking more.
2: Like with her first nursing school, Jane is forced to leave again without a nursing certificate. She does end up getting a little work as a nurse at Cambridge Hospital. But would you believe it? She is let go yet again for administering opiates improperly.
1: Wow, I am so surprised. Do you hear my voice? being surprised i mean no matter how many patients die jolly jane's ability to manipulate the doctors and those above her station keep getting her good recommendations which leads her to her next position that will allow her to have more time alone with her patients and with less oversight that's right jolly jane's about to become an at-home nurse I find it so fascinating that Jane is just able to trick all of those people above her, her teachers and doctors. But those on her own level know immediately something is up. And I think I know the answer to this question. They're nurses. They get it. We love nurses
2: here at Crime of a Lifetime. The most trusted profession in the United States. Did you know that? I didn't yeah. know
1: that, but I'm not surprised. I also think that if her motive is sexual in nature, then going into nursing provides her an outlet. And this is a woman without too much power in her daily life doing the most powerful thing you can think of—murder. I just—I I don't know what wires got
2: crossed for love and hate, but oof, it's terrifying. And it's not just hate. I—I I think that it. She's learning that it isn't worth it to try to relate to people. It will not serve her. It will be met with rejection. What she can do is manipulate people and on multiple levels. So she can emotionally manipulate by outward appearances, and that could keep her reputation clean despite her actions. She can seem very friendly so that she can benefit from benevolent sexism. People are apt to ignore what's happening on paper, what they see happening with their very eyes. And then the ultimate manipulation, she can literally manipulate a body by injecting something into it and determining who lives and dies. I mean, Quinn, you nailed it right on the head. It's benevolent
1: sexism. I mean, there's no question about it whatsoever. She's operating as a murderer, as a nurse, and is getting let go from job after job, including for misusing opiates, and they still don't Do anything. I think more than her being a nurse, it's being a woman that shields her.
2: When Jane leaves the public hospital to go into private nursing, she takes with her a stockpile of opiates, her poison of choice. And, you know, I don't think she got permission. Hmm. Who can blame her, though? It's an awkward question at a hospital. What's she gonna do? Say, hey, can I leave with some party favors, a little memento to remember my time here? Do you think this is the inspiration for a Nurse Jackie?
1: Hmm. Hmm. No. Different story. In 1891, Jane goes to visit her old family at the Toppin house. And she wants to have a little chat with the old Anne Toppin. Now this is the closest person Jane has to a mother figure. She took Jane in and she raised her as a servant. And Jane feels it's about darn time that she returns the favor. But shortly after Jane's arrival, Anne Toppin is struck by a sudden illness and dies. Listen, it's not clear to anyone what happened, but later on, spoiler alert, Jane would admit to poisoning her. Jane expected Anne would leave something for her in her last will and testament. She did serve the house faithfully for most of her life, but when the will is read, Jane gets nothing.
2: And actually, from what we know, she's really hurt by this. Which tells us that despite everything that had happened, Jane believed that Anne had some love for her, even if it was just a tiny sliver. A crumb. A crumb of love. A morsel. But then she finds out she doesn't even get a mention in the will. This is too much. It's like being abandoned all over again.
1: The home is left to Elizabeth and her new husband, Oramel Brigham. They then ask Jane if she wants to come on and be the head of their household, but Jane can't fathom the idea of staying there and serving Elizabeth, so Jane decides to leave. But before long, she returns again for a visit, and in 1899, Jane visits Elizabeth and Oramel. She tells them that she's going on vacation to Buzzards Bay. It's this little beach town um, at the western end of Cape Cod, and she invites Elizabeth to come down and join her.
2: According to Oramel, Elizabeth had been suffering from a bout of sadness. And he thought it would be a good idea for her to spend time with her old pal Jane. So Elizabeth arrives in Cape Cod in need of some love, some sister time. So she and Jane, they go on a picnic together and they get that quality time. And after a long, hot day, Jane prepares Elizabeth a drink made with a special Hungarian mineral water. It's known to be curative, she says.
1: But as Elizabeth downs it, she suddenly doesn't feel very well. She's having trouble breathing. So Jane holds her in her arms, and she watches the strychnine poison she's laced into that drink take effect. Jane delights in Elizabeth's gasps until she breathes her final breath and dies.
2: Her cause of death will later be listed as heart failure. And it would be easy enough to explain that Elizabeth's sadness, it just finally overtook her, and her heart simply gave out. You know, I am not so sure sadness is what caused this death. Personally, I'd call it revenge. Jane Toppin isn't done with her old home. No, after
1: Elizabeth's death, she returns to Lowell, Massachusetts to help with Elizabeth's funeral, but what she really wants is to take Elizabeth's place as the head of the house, to return to the home that she was raised in as the one in charge. And to do that, that means she has to win over and marry Elizabeth's widower, Oramel Brigham.
2: She tries to move in right away, but, you know, he's just lost his wife. He's really, he's in no mood to remarry, and he just isn't that into her. But Jane's playing the long game. She used to be one of their primary servants, and now she wants that job back so that she can get closer to Oromo. But wouldn't you know it? There's
1: someone in her way. There's a maid there, a woman by the name of Florence Calkins, and she's not about to just let Jane come and take her place. So for the moment, Jane backs off.
2: Doctors from Cambridge Hospital keep recommending patients to Jane, And Jane, jolly Jane, she just keeps taking them. Of course, she can't kill all of them. That would be too obvious. They'd be on to her fast. So she is selective. Only killing the ones she feels will be easiest. And in the process of those killings, she's also stealing their money. In December of 1899, she gives 70-year-old Mary McClear
1: a fatal dose of opiates. But the official cause of death on the death certificate? Apoplexy, which is a stroke based on today's standards. And a month later, in January of 1900, she does the same thing to 70-year-old William Ingraham. His cause of death, apparently heart failure.
2: All of these victims are old, so none of them are raising any flags. And around that same time, remember that headmaid at the Toppen household? Well, she suddenly takes ill. And nobody suspects that Jane's regular visits to see Oromel could have anything to do with that. But on January 15th, 1900, Florence Calkin's dies of heart failure. Or you know, was it sadness? Vapors? Uh, we may never know. I mean, we do know it was Jane. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> Actually we-, we know. Actually, we
1: know. It was an overdose. And Jane uses this as an opportunity to finally swoop in to rejoin the Toppen house and make herself indispensable to Oramel. And she hopes that all of this will just endear her to Oramel so that she can marry him. But he's still grieving. It's not been that long.
2: He's not interested. But Jane, she's just not the kind of person that gives up that easy. Oramel might not let her take over yet? but she's not done trying. So what we're seeing here is a huge shift. It might just sound like death after death after death, but what's gone on is that Jane went from killing near strangers to revisiting her past and going after folks that she had a personal vendetta against. And
1: I think also there's a shift, too, in the way she's killing them. I think in the beginning, it's she got a lot of sexual pleasure out of these kills, and now it feels like it's not totally for sexual pleasure, but it's for personal advancement, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, first it's stealing, and now it's just to get away, and the, and there's also to get a stealing, man, to
2: get a job,
1: <laughs> to get money, to get power. I mean, it's just like there's something there, right? I mean, Jane's taking all the hate she got growing up in that house and is using it to destroy the Toppin family one by one, and anyone who gets in her way, and to become the only Toppin, the top Toppin. And to take their wealth, too. Ha, 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 But ultimately, she would take this plot too far.
0: By February of 1900, Jane is getting tired
2: of being a nurse. She wants to try to do something new, something different. Mm. Mixology? <gasps> No, but that no. that you know that might have been a better fit. Actually, she's thinking about getting a job at St. John's Theological School because if there's anything we've come to know about Jane, it's that she's a woman of God, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. Her best friend actually works there, Sarah Connor's. She's a dining hall matron and she encourages Jane to go for it.
1: But here's the thing is Jane wants this job, but she really doesn't have any skills or qualifications for the job. And there isn't an opening. You know, for some reason, poisoning, murder, nursing just isn't the same. The, the skills don't transfer, I guess one might say. But here's our Jane. She's an optimist, and she loves to follow her dreams. And if there isn't an opening on the staff, then maybe she might just be able to make one. And she does.
2: bye poisoning her friend Sarah. She uses strychnine just like she did with her foster sister Elizabeth. So after poisoning Sarah,
1: her best friend, she gets the job and turns out she's pretty bad at it. Again, her experience of servitude, nursing and poisoning doesn't make her good at balancing the budget and managing people. She's fired shortly after she begins. She doesn't know how to do the job at all. I guess she didn't think that one through. She's completely unqualified. So she's forced to go back working as a nurse.
2: Quick recap. Jane has killed her patients. She's (laughs) killed a few people who she might consider family. And she's now killed her bestie. How a reputation of death isn't following her everywhere, I I do not know. I, I guess it's just a quirk of the 1900s. I guess it was pretty easy to get away with murder. I mean, she is a woman. She is a nurse. Who would suspect her of such horrible things?
1: But despite all of this stealing and stuff like that, she's actually not doing financially well at this point. And she has no friends, which is because she's killing them all. But she still has this charming and magnetic personality. I mean, she's Jolly Jane, after all. And in 1901, she charms a man named Alden Davis into renting her a cottage in Bourne, Massachusetts. Alden Davis is the patriarch of another wealthy
2: Massachusetts family, much like the Toppins. It doesn't take Jane Long to fall behind on her rent. So now she's in debt to the Davises for $500, which is just a ton of money in 1901. I looked it up. It'd be like $17,500 today. So Alden Davis sends his wife, 62-year-old Maddie, to go collect this. I guess Maddie's the uh, enforcer in their relationship.
1: I love that. Go Maddie. So Maddie goes to Jane's cottage on July 4th and demands the money. Jane, you gotta pay up. Rent is past due. Let's go. And Jane puts on her charm and she offers her a nice drink from that Hungarian mineral water. And you know what? It's not just Hungarian mineral water. It is laced with, you guessed it, morphine and atropine and Maddie passes out. Now, Maddie also has diabetes, so the coma Maddie is in is very easily explained to her family. And once she eventually dies, Jane accompanies Maddie's body home to the Davis family with the story that his wife, their mother, succumbed
2: to her diabetes. And they buy it. I mean, this is a nurse telling them, after all. They don't have any idea that she's killed a bunch of other people using that same method. And while Jane's at the Davis house, she has a spare minute, so she goes ahead and poisons their maid. She wants the maid to seem like she's drunk so that she'll be fired and then Jane can take her place. It is almost exactly like what she did at the Toppen house. She murdered Florence at the Toppen House, but she let this one live.
1: She wants to become their maid so badly because she's trying to find a way into their home to cancel her debt. And not by indentured servitude, but by literally finding the records and disposing of the paper receipt. Over the next several weeks, Jane tries to dispose of their budget books so that her debt to the Davises will just be erased. But she's completely unsuccessful.
2: But like the old adage goes, if at first you don't succeed, keep poisoning people. Before the month of July is out, Jane poisons Alden's daughter Annie, who was suspicious of her. And then eight days later, she poisons Alden. But the
1: $500 debt just doesn't go away. It passes down to Alden's other daughter, Minnie Gibbs. Damn inheritances. Jane pleads with Minnie to just sign the debt away, but she insists that Jane must repay it. And only five days after the death of Alden Davis, his daughter, Minnie, succumbs to a sudden illness and dies.
2: Four members of this Davis family are dead in a matter of five weeks. Alden and Maddie were older, so sure, maybe it can be explained, but their daughters are both, like, in their 40s and healthy? They died right after the parents? This does not smell like a coincidence. No, Quinn, it reeks of murder.
1: Captain Irving Gibbs, Minnie's husband, was at sea off the coast of Virginia when he gets the news that his wife is ill. By the time he arrived at her bedside, She was breathing her last breath.
2: As Irving is mourning the passing of his wife, his father is sure that there's foul play at work. And he immediately goes to the police and tells them, you gotta look into this Jane woman. He's like, look, you explain to me how four members of the Davis family died in five weeks. This isn't adding up.
1: And the police are like, yeah, it does feel a little strange. And once the police start looking into this, They also find it really suspicious. A detective is actually set to watch Jane's every movement. And where she goes next is back to the Toppen house. She still has her eyes set on Oramel Brigham. She's going to find a way into that house, come hell or
2: high water. When Jane returns to the Toppen house, Oramel is still reeling from the death of his wife, Elizabeth. He really loved her. He's really still grieving, folks and his sister Edna is at his side for comfort. From the moment Jane steps into the house, Edna is like, hmm, she doesn't like this. She's extremely suspicious of Jane. She's heard about all the deaths in that Davis family. Jane's the only common denominator. She warns Oramel that Jane has ulterior motives and that she might not be visiting out of love. But Edna,
1: she has no idea what Jane is capable of. Because on August 27th, 1901, Jane gives Edna one of her mineral water cocktails. And Edna dies. The cause of her death? Sadness? Heart failure.
0: Hmm. Well, well, let's be honest.
1: It's Jane. Jane is the cause of her death. <laughs> Just put,
2: start putting that on the death certificate. Just put that Jane, Jolly Jane Topping. Despite all that's happened, Oramel ignores his late sister's warnings, and Jane puts her all into marrying this guy. She's gonna win him over! And she's gonna do it the only way she knows how, through poison. So Jane mixes a cocktail for Oramel that's just strong enough to make him sick, but not kill him. She's going to prove herself worthy of his love by nursing him back to health. And she would repeat this process over and over
1: and over again as though he is going through a severe illness. She would push his health to the brink of death so that he would desperately call her for help and then she would give him the antidote and it was back and forth, back and forth so he was weak and desperate for her and she's sure that with this once he recovers he'll finally see how much he needs her and he will ask her to marry him.
2: But Oramel, again, I said it before, he's just not that into her. He does not see her like that. So once (laughs) she stops the poison regimen, he just goes back to feeling grief for his wife. Quinn,
1: is that in the book, he's just not that into you? You know, if you poison him and almost kill him and he doesn't want to be with you, then then he's just not that into you? I mean, you've got to walk away at that point. But she doesn't walk away because she's so desperate to be there. So then she tries to blackmail him. First, she's like, hey, I'm pregnant. And he's like, no, that's not even possible because they haven't done the deed. And then she's like, okay, I'm going to threaten to kill myself. And that works even worse. Oramel kicks her out of the house. All her power and all of her tricks couldn't make Oramel do what she wanted. They couldn't make him love her.
2: In a final stroke of desperation, Jane ends up injecting herself with the poison. But it's, again, it's not enough to kill her. She wakes up in the hospital and is treated for a nervous disorder. Oramel, clearly just trying to avoid the drama that Jane is bringing around, bans her from his house. And Jane, for the first time in a long while, has to admit defeat.
1: And to top it all off, the sudden death of Oramel's sister Edna catches the attention of the police, and after taking a look through the Toppen house, they actually find some of Jane's drugs stashed under Oramel's mattress. Once Jane's out of the hospital, she is arrested under suspicion of murder. I mean, you have to ask, haven't there been enough deaths that they would have, I don't know, caught on earlier, but They don't. I mean, her killing spree becomes so frequent that it's literally impossible to ignore. It's like it's blinding that it's like it's this woman. It's her right here. It's like there might as well be like (laughs) Vegas sized signs just like pointing to her head. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what I think what gets her in the end, honestly, is her hubris. She just thinks that she can get away with this because she has for so long.
2: Yeah, uh, she has been off the rails for pretty much this entire story. But it does feel like after she kills Elizabeth, she stops caring whether or not she's suspicious because she's been suspicious a long time. And you're right, no one's seeing it. She kills an entire family in weeks. I mean, that to me says I either I think I absolutely can't get caught or I want to get caught. But that's right in line with folks that develop reactive attachment disorder that I was talking about earlier. They have trouble connecting cause and effect, and there's a a real leaning toward impulsive behavior. So this might sound crazy, but I think that Jane sees the problem in front of her, and she's not thinking about anything else other than how to get through that moment, how to solve that problem. So what you're saying is rad is the reason she's killing, but it's also the
1: reason she ends up getting caught.
2: Yes. It's as though you were at a light and it turned red and all you thought was, I want to keep going. So you went through it and there isn't a part of your brain that allows you to say, if I go through it, I might get a ticket. If I go through it, I might get hurt or I might hurt someone else. I don't think there's a There's no relationship between cause and effect. It's, I want to keep going, so I will.
1: Once Jane is arrested, she is totally serene when she confesses to, and get ready for this, 31 murders. But she herself thinks that 31 is a conservative estimate of how many people she's killed, and claims that it was probably
2: more more than 100 She doesn't feel any remorse about what she's done to these victims or to their families. In her own words, Jane Toppin tells a reporter, "'I do not know the feeling of fear, and I do not know the feeling of remorse. Although I understand perfectly what these words mean, but I cannot sense them at all. I do not seem to be able to realize the awfulness of the things.'" Why don't I feel sorry and grieve over it? I don't know. I seem to have a sort of paralysis of thought and reason."
1: And this story goes absolutely wild in the press, as you can imagine. People are fascinated by her affliction. And I think it's also the fact that she's a woman. They're shocked that a nurse, that a woman, could commit such heinous, violent crimes. And she's even called a necrophile because it got out that she found pleasure in the deaths of her victims. The psychologists who examine her prior to her trial seem to agree that she is clinically insane.
2: At trial, her lawyers put in a plea for not guilty by reason of insanity. And funny enough, Jane states very clearly in trial, Insane? How can I be insane? When I killed those people, I knew that I was doing wrong. I was perfectly conscious that what I was doing was not right. I never at any time failed to realize what I was doing. Now, how can a person be insane who realizes what she is doing, right? Insanity is complete lack of any feeling of responsibility, isn't it? But we do have some reason to believe that Jane denied her
1: insanity because she believed that an insane person would not actually think they were insane, and therefore denying it would make her seem more insane, which to me feels like a little bit like Salem witch trials confusion, where it's like, if you sink you're a witch, but if you swim, you're a witch. It's like you, it, it doesn't make sense where it's like, okay, but she's using reverse psychology on that one.
2: Well, in the end, it doesn't really matter. She succeeds in that the jury agrees that she is clinically insane. So instead of being convicted of murder and sent to prison, she's committed by court order to the Taunton Asylum.
1: And every day while she's in the asylum, she's forced to take medications that get this... Make her feel bad. At least wow. not sad. Wow. Presumably the drugs are meant to keep her docile, but Jane knows that she's not like the other people in the asylum. She's well-read. She's intelligent. She knows she's not normal, but she's not like the other inmates here.
2: And eventually, Jane resists taking these drugs. She even resists eating for fear that her food's laced with pills she's supposed to take. Or worse, poison. Taste of her own medicine. She loses 80 pounds and has to be force-fed with a tube. After a year, she looks nothing like the Jolly Jane of a few years before. She's thin and gaunt.
1: But even she knows she doesn't belong in the outside world. She knows that if she were to be freed... She would just kill again. She just can't control it.
2: It seems to me that at a young age, Jane saw that people, they, they let you down. They let you down always and in really drastic ways. And the safest way to be with someone is to control that person entirely. And there really isn't a greater show of control than deciding when someone's life ends and being with them in that moment to watch your decision play out. Psychologists that believe in reactive attachment disorder or RAD say that what happens is at a young age, when you have this basic need for love and trust and it's not met, your brain actually physiologically develops differently. It gets wired differently. The person is no longer the same as you or I, physiologically. And I I do tend to think that that's the case with Jane. Jane's getting close to her victims. She's lying in bed with them. She's sharing a home with them. And then she's killing them. And to me, I wondered if that wasn't a way for her to reenact her own abandonment over and over and over again. I am with you. And now I'm alone. Find another victim. I am with you, I'm close to you, and now I am alone. It's sort of like the replaying of that childhood trauma, but it's replaying it where she's in control. Somebody doesn't decide to walk away and leave her. She decides, and now our time together is over. I'm the boss, and now you're gone. It's like the ultimate power trip where she's just trying to be the one in control
1: and the power over what happened to her as a kid. I think you're so right on, Quinn. It's interesting. When I started looking into this case, I saw somewhere that it was described as being an angel of death because most of her victims were, in fact, old. But I just – after learning more about this case, I just don't think that's an accurate description at all. Her motive was just to get ahead in any way that she could. And I think she was able to do this for so long and unnoticed because of benevolent sexism. I think her verdict at the end of not guilty by reason of insanity is also benevolent sexism. I think she knows she didn't belong in the asylum. I I don't think she did. I think she belonged in prison. I don't think she was insane. I think she knew what she was doing. I think at the time, people couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that a woman, a nurse, was killing all of these people.
2: I think that by finding her insane, it was Mm -hmm. their best chance at saying, this isn't real. This person does not exist. A nurse could never be so evil. And the truth is, she was wired differently. And you can call it evil. You can call it uh, sociopathic. You can call it whatever you want. But it was very real. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next.
1: We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following. An article in the St. Paul Globe entitled Has Murder Mania? An article in the Kansas City Star entitled The Poisoner Fears to Eat? And the book, America's First Female Serial Killer, by Mary Kay McBrayer. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out
2: these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our
1: associate producers are Hazel May
2: and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Epema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do,